well, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's word to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, following an overview study a few weeks back through the book of Daniel, you might remember that I expressed my desire to zone in on Daniel chapter 2 and to study its impact and its relationship with the eschatological doctrine known as futuristic premillennialism. In lieu of our study through the book of Revelation in corporate worship and coming to Revelation 20 and the millennium and the new year, I want us to turn to a specific passage from the Old Testament prophets to consider the kingdom of God and the millennium. If you're taking notes, I've titled this morning's message, God's Kingdom Program and Futuristic Premillennialism. God's Kingdom Program and Futuristic Premillennialism. And I do want to forewarn you at the outset that we are going to be covering a lot of ground very rapidly this morning. And so later this week, you will have PowerPoint that is posted and uh, Lord willing, maybe we can even have it up here on the slides for you. I feel like that might be helpful in organizing and structuring our thoughts as we move along. You know, one of the most prominent eschatological debates that has generated copious amounts of academic literature and scholarly disputation concerns the nature and the timing of the millennium. Millennium is derived from two Latin terms, the first meaning thousand and the latter meaning year. Obviously, that comes from the six references to the 1,000 years from Revelation chapter 20. And in defense of these particular theological viewpoints concerning the millennium, theologians and scholars alike seek to establish their positions upon the authority of the Theopneustos scriptures, God's word. However, there is a passage contained in one of the most prophetically steep passages of the Old Testament that has been overlooked in the millennial debate. If you ever decide to study the millennium, which I would encourage you to do so, as you read various resources, such as the Four Views of the Millennium, the Millennium by Lorraine Bettner, other resources, you'll see that Daniel chapter 2 is oftentimes cross-referenced, but very little extensive treatment is given to this text. And that is why I want us to turn this morning to Daniel chapter 2 and specifically focus on verses 31 through 45. At the outset of our study, I want you to be aware of my primary contention, my primary burden this morning in studying this passage. And my primary argument is that a faithful, consistent study of Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 through 45, mandates and necessitates the eschatological position known as futuristic premillennialism. What is that? What is the foundational teaching of futuristic premillennialism when it comes to God's kingdom program? This is a weighty definition. You will have it at your disposal later. But definitionally, futuristic premillennialism teaches that subsequent to the second advent of Christ, when Christ's feet stand upon the Mount of Olives, he will establish his millennial kingdom. This kingdom will be located upon the earth. Jesus Christ will rule upon the throne of David, according to Luke chapter 1, verses 32 through 33. And the duration of this kingdom will be a thousand years, according to Revelation 20. Until the time when the Lord Jesus Christ hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, 1 Corinthians 15. To give you a roadmap of where we are going, I want to proceed in our study first by looking at an explanatory foundation and then by engaging 
and an exegetical analysis. First, I want to provide you with an explanatory foundation behind the study of Daniel chapter 2. Prior to engaging in the study of the biblical text, I want to provide you this morning with three foundational pillars that will help guide our study. Three foundational pillars. The first foundational pillar is the preliminary hermeneutical principles. The preliminary hermeneutical principles that we must adopt in our study of Daniel chapter 2 and every biblical passage for that matter. Prior to engaging and approaching the biblical text, these certain principles must be established. And the first preliminary hermeneutical principle that we need to embrace is that of authorial intent. John Calvin, the magisterial reformer, said, it is almost the interpreter's only task to unfold the mind of the writer whom he has undertaken to expound. Therefore, in faithful biblical exegesis, the authorial intent of the biblical author is our prize goal. The comments of theologians are mere pale echoes to the Spirit's resounding voice through the theologian Daniel. What does Daniel say under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit? That is our task. A second preliminary hermeneutical principle that we need to embrace is that the normal or literal understanding of the passage should be assumed unless there is clear literary or contextual evidences that would argue otherwise. This is part and parcel of embracing a literal grammatical hermeneutic. And this is very important as a foundational principle because as you engage in the debate with other commentators and scholars alike, you'll see that the consistent application of an hermeneutic varies amongst different scholars. In other words, as we approach the study of Daniel chapter two, we need to understand that the biblical author Daniel is communicating God's truth via propositional revelation. He is communicating God's truth in syntax, in grammar, in words, in phrases, in clauses, using normal literary conventions and language. Well, now that that foundational pillar has been established, I want to present to you a second foundational pillar, and that is the predominant millennial positions. What are the various interpretations of this passage at the outset? What are the three predominant millennial positions that have come to the fore? And we'll look at them in order, but those three include premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. And again, we'll look at them individually. The first is premillennialism. Premillennialism teaches that the second coming of Christ precedes or is before the establishment of the millennial kingdom and the earthly reign of Christ. Hence that prefix premillennialism. Now there are a different couple variations within premillennialism that you need to be aware of. Obviously at the outset, I told you that it's my contention that Daniel chapter two teaches futuristic premillennialism. But there is another stream of premillennialism known as historic premillennialism. Historic premillennialism teaches that the, the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments of Revelation chapter 6 through 8 are historically contemporaneous with our current age. They're ongoing right now, therefore they're, it's historic. And likewise, they don't necessarily see a future role of Israel in the messianic kingdom. But premillennialism as a whole teaches that the second coming of Christ precedes the establishment of the kingdom. 
A second predominant millennial position is known as post-millennialism. And to use the language, I don't want to straw man anybody here, but to use the language of post-millennial interpreter Lorraine Bettner, this is what post-millennialism is. Post-millennialism is the view of the last things that holds that the kingdom of God is, notice this, is now being extended in the world through the preaching of the gospel and the saving work of the Holy Spirit that the world will eventually be Christianized and that the return of Christ will occur at the end of a long, undefined period of righteousness commonly called the millennium. Notice that key phrase is now, at this present hour, being extended through the world. A third predominant millennial position is known as ah millennialism. You'll notice that prefixed negation ah, which is really a misnomer, Ah, millennialists believe in a millennium, but rather they teach that the kingdom of God is now being presently realized spiritually and was established at the first coming of Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection. So right at the outset, you can see some of the differences that exist between these three positions. Post-millennialism and amillennialism teach that the kingdom of God is now being realized and is now being extended throughout the world through the progress of the gospel, through Christ and the saints reigning from heaven. And premillennialism establishes that the millennial kingdom, that Christ's kingdom is future in its orientation. And following our study this morning of Daniel chapter two, I trust that by the convincing of Holy Writ and the illumination of the Holy Spirit that you will see that premillennialism best suits Daniel chapter two and the rest of the biblical witness as well. A third foundational pillar that you need to be aware of this morning is the primary eschatological purposes. You see, eschatology is not merely something that is to be debated by scholars and theologians, but it is immensely practical to your Christian life. As we consider these primary eschatological purposes, I want us to ask the question, why should you even be concerned about this study? Why does this even matter? Why should you just not tune out right now, head up and go to third service early? Why does this study matter? And the first purpose, the first reason that I would give you is because it is revelational. It is revelational. That is to say, God has revealed and disclosed several features that pertain to the millennium through his authoritative word. Deuteronomy 29, 29, Moses says to the sons of Israel on the plains of Moab, the secret things belong to Yahweh, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. The things that are revelational, the things that are scriptural, and certainly the millennium is, are given for us to our sons forever. They are to be understood by the believer. Secondly, a second purpose behind studying eschatology. Answering the question, why does this even matter, is because the study of the millennium is immensely practical in your Christian life. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul instructs the church of Thessalonica on the nature of the rapture. And he closes that chapter in verse 18 with the exhortation, therefore comfort one another with these words. You see, the the rapture of the church was to be of an immense comfort to the Christians there in the first century, and the same is true for us today. 
You remember in our study of 1 John, in 1 John chapter 3, the apostle John writes, we know that when he is manifested, when he is revealed, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And notice this, verse three, and everyone who has this hope fixated upon him purifies himself just as he is pure. As we fixate ourselves upon the glorious future that awaits the Christian and what we will be like in the here and now, we purify ourselves. We pursue holiness. It's immensely practical in your everyday pursuit of the mortification of sin and the vivification of righteousness and the putting off and the putting on. Eschatology, the study of the last things, is immensely practical in your Christian life. Therefore, this study is vitally relevant to you this morning. Well, now that the explanatory foundation has been laid, I want us to turn to an exegetical analysis of Daniel chapter two. This is the bread and butter of our study this morning. It's in this chapter, in Daniel chapter two, verses 31 through 45, that the distressing dream of Nebuchadnezzar is revealed along with its inspired interpretation. And this dream reveals four successive earthly monarchies or kingdoms that are abruptly ended with the coming of a stone kingdom, the kingdom of God. And the importance of this chapter in the study of the millennium and the study of eschatology cannot be overstated. Charles Feinberg says this, whoever wishes to understand the prophetic scriptures must come to this chapter for the broad outline of God's future program for the nations, for Israel, and for the glorious kingdom of Messiah. Here in this chapter, in one panoramic sweep, the whole history of human civilization is spread before us from the days of Nebuchadnezzar to the end of time. Therefore, it behooves us as students of scripture to take pains in the study of this passage. The 17th century theologian Joseph Mead said that this passage contains the ABCs of biblical prophecy, the foundational structural framework of biblical prophecy. Now, as we engage in our analysis and our study of this passage, I first want to present the content of the dream and then look at its interpretation. So first, let's look at the content of the dream. The content of the dream, this ranges from verse 31 through verse 35. Follow along with me in your copy of God's word as I read this passage for us. There we read these words, you, O king, were looking. And behold, there was a single great image. That image, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was rising up in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that image was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continue looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. It's in these verses that the content of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is disclosed. And Daniel was not the source of this revelation. As you read the chapter, you realize that King Nebuchadnezzar 
asked the magicians and the Chaldeans to not only state the interpretation of the dream, but even its content, but rather look at verse 28. This is the source of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. There's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the last days. As I said earlier, these four successive parts of the statue represent four successive earthly kingdoms that have been known to history and have since faded into the annals of history. And it's beginning in verse 36 that I want to spend the majority of our time. And beginning in verse 36, ranging through verse 45, we find the interpretation of the dream. The interpretation of the dream. In verse 36, you'll notice that word interpretation. The Aramaic word behind interpretation signifies the meaning, the, the significance behind what was just disclosed. In verses 37 through 38, we see that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire are expressly related to the head of gold. You can see that at the end of verse 38. You are the head of gold. Now it's important in these verses to recognize the twice repeated phrase, he has caused and he has given. Look at verse 37. It's to you, Nebuchadnezzar, O king, to whom the God of heaven has given. Verse 38, he has given them into your hand and has made you rule with power over them all. This expresses the truth that we see earlier in Daniel's psalm in verse 21. It is God who removes kings and establishes kings. Now the fact that Nebuchadnezzar is specifically identified as the head of gold in verse 38 presents no exegetical dilemma for understanding each of these parts to represent kingdoms. Commentator Stephen Miller says frequently in scripture, the terms king and kingdom are employed interchangeably since the king was considered the embodiment of his kingdom. In the Semitic mind, there was this concept of corporate solidarity where a single representative, a single figure stood for the larger entity. And that's what we see here in verse 38. History tells us that in verse 37, 38, the Babylonian empire reigned and ruled from 605 BC to 539 BC when its authority was usurped by another. And in verse 39, in verse 39, we are alerted to this subsequent kingdom. Notice that preposition in verse 39, after. But after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. That preposition is also employed in Daniel chapter seven, a very synonymous text. And it signifies that these kingdoms are not contemporaneous with one another. They don't exist side by side. After you, Nebuchadnezzar, another kingdom will arise. And very little attention is given to this second kingdom into which we are introduced to a third kingdom identified as a kingdom of bronze. Now there exists general consensus amongst professing evangelicals concerning the identity of these first three kingdoms. Obviously in verses 37 through 38, we have the explicit identification of the head of gold with Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian empire. 
And these two subsequent kingdoms referenced in verse 39 are generally assumed to be the Medo-Persian Empire, which ruled from 539 BC to 331 BC, and the third kingdom, the kingdom of bronze, being the Grecian Empire, which ruled from 331 BC to 146 BC. And that's where I want us to turn now to look at the fourth kingdom. In verse 40, a fourth kingdom is introduced. Follow along as I read verses 40 through 43. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. Now in that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not cling to one another even as iron does not combine with clay." This fourth kingdom that is introduced in verse 40 as being strong of iron refers to the Roman Empire, the fourth successive and subsequent kingdom, which ruled from 146 BC through the fourth century AD into which the Roman Empire split. But I want you to notice that there is a distinction that is made between this fourth kingdom in verse 40, identified as the legs and the feet and toes of verse 41 and 43. You see, there's this congruence that exists and that they're made both of iron, but there's a distinction that is introduced in which the feet and toes are made partly of clay, partly of iron. In fact, in verse 41, this stage of the kingdom is identified as a divided kingdom. So while maintaining a measure of congruence with the Roman Empire, verse 40, this kingdom also is distinct. Well, that must cause us to ask the question, what is the identity of the feet and toes of verses 41 through 43? It seems that the parallel in Daniel chapter seven shines light upon the identity. Turn with me to Daniel chapter seven. Daniel chapter seven, really a, a parallel passage, if you will, Daniel's four beast vision of chapter seven parallels the four successive parts of Nebuchadnezzar's statue dream in chapter two. And it's in verses seven through eight of Daniel chapter seven that we're introduced to a fourth beast described as fearsome and terrifying and extraordinarily strong. And notice this, it had large iron teeth. Verse eight, while I was contemplating the horns that arose from this beast, Behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of man and a mouth speaking great boast. Fast forward to verse 24 of chapter 7. This is the interpretation of Daniel's vision. Verse 24, as for those 10 horns that we just looked at in verse 8, out of this kingdom, out of the fourth beast, 10 kings will arise. And another will arise after them and he will be different from the previous ones and will make low three kings. 
it is the logical deduction to conclude that these 10 horns, which arise out of this fourth kingdom, is parallel with the toes of Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Turn back to Daniel chapter two. Daniel chapter two. Now, if you're inquisitive and you look at verses 41 through 43, you'll notice that there is not an explicit number of toes referenced. Look at verse 41. You saw the feet and toes. Verse 42, and as the toes of the feet were partly of iron, partly of clay. And that's true. There is not an explicit number of toes identified in Nebuchadnezzar's statue dream. However, it is the logical and the reasonable deduction to conclude that this statue did in fact have 10 toes. Why? Because just as the other parts of the statue were described in human anatomy and human-like form, so too are the toes. And moreover than that, the parallel that exists between Daniel chapter two and Daniel chapter seven in the two dreams and visions insinuates that these are in fact 10 toes synonymous with the 10 kings of Daniel chapter seven. So the best understanding of the identity of these 10 toes is 10 kings that will rule over a confederacy during a latter revived stage of the Roman Empire. You see, there's nothing within the annals, the annals of the historic Roman Empire that would suggest a 10-king confederacy described here in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. Nothing in history has ever taken place. Moreover, within the framework of canonical revelation, you'll remember in our study of Revelation that there is a confederacy of 10 kings that rises up immediately prior to the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 13 and Revelation 17. Therefore, from the standpoint of where we are right now in history, this kingdom, this stage of the kingdom, awaits a future fulfillment. You'll see in a moment why we spent so much time there. And it's in our study that we come to verses 44 through 45 and we're introduced to a fifth kingdom. The fifth kingdom. We come to the pinnacle, the climax of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in verses 44 and 45. Follow along as I read. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will cause a kingdom to rise up which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will happen in the future. So the dream is certain and its interpretation trustworthy. All commentators agree that this kingdom in verses 44 and 45 describes God's kingdom, the kingdom of God. Moreover, it is undoubtable that this kingdom is synonymous with the kingdom that is given to the son of man in Daniel chapter seven. 
Now, as we study these verses, as we study this fifth kingdom, there are several characteristics that I wanna provide you with that demonstrates that this fifth kingdom awaits a future fulfillment. Several characteristics of this fifth kingdom. The first characteristic that I would present you with is the timing of this fifth kingdom. The timing of the fifth kingdom. Look back in verse 44. There it says, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will cause a kingdom to rise up. The timing of the establishment of this kingdom is explicitly stated in the days of those kings. The nearest antecedent to those kings, that which immediately comes before is that 10 king confederacy that is represented by the toes of the statue. Again, that's why we spent so much time in the identification portion of the fourth kingdom. Moreover, verse 44 describes this kingdom as one that will crush and put an end to all of these kingdoms. Well, this description presents a unique dilemma for those that view the establishment of the kingdom of God at the first coming of Jesus as post-millennialists and amillennialists propose. You remember, the kingdom of God is now being extended throughout the world. The kingdom of God is presently being realized spiritually in heaven. But that can't be the case. As verse 44 says, this kingdom puts an end to all other kingdoms. Gentile rule and dominion was not abolished at the first coming of Christ. Moreover, the Roman empire was not dealt a death blow during Jesus's first advent. In fact, the Roman Empire continued to exist until the fourth century AD, four more centuries after the coming of Christ. Listen to the words of fifth century theologian Theodoret. He aptly comments on those who interpret the timing of this kingdom to be corresponding to the first coming of Jesus. Listen to his words. He says, let them show that the kingdom of the Romans passed away at the same time the savior appeared. You can't. According to Daniel chapter two, verses 44 through 45, the establishment of the kingdom crushed and put an end to all Gentile rule and dominion. This did not occur at the first advent of Jesus Messiah. Fandel, a commentator, is correct when he says this. He says, the stone striking the image and shattering it to pieces suggests a world-shaking, catastrophic event rather than an event almost unnoticed by the world and the slow beginnings and relatively slow progress of the Christian church. You see, this understanding of the timing of the millennium is completely harmonious with that of futuristic premillennialism, but is completely antithesis and opposed to postmillennialism and amillennialism. I want to provide you with a second characteristic of this fifth kingdom. A second characteristic is the source of this fifth kingdom. The source. Look back at verse 44. The text reads, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will cause a kingdom to rise up. The source of this kingdom is clearly divine. The God of heaven is the one who establishes this kingdom. 
as evidenced also by the stone being cut out from the mountain without human hands. Let's look at a third characteristic, the nature of this fifth kingdom. The nature of the fifth kingdom. You see, this fifth kingdom must have an earthly element to be consistent with the imagery in the context of the passage. John Calvin, in his commentary on Daniel, says this. He says, although God showed to the king of Babylon the four earthly monarchies, it does not follow that the fifth is the same. However, this proposition interpretation proposed by Calvin argues against sound hermeneutical principles. The same word that is used to describe this fifth kingdom, Messiah's kingdom, is the same word that is employed to describe the four successive kingdoms prior. Also, verse 35, Daniel, the content of this dream, describes this kingdom as filling the whole earth to be consistent with the imagery and the language of this vision, this fifth kingdom in like term must be an earthly kingdom. This is opposed specifically to amillennialism, which you'll remember argues that the kingdom of God is being spiritually realized now in heaven with Christ and the saints reigning. That also argues against Revelation 5.10, which says that the saints will rule and reign on the earth. The language of verse 35 of filling the whole earth, the the context of the four successive earthly kingdoms and the language that is described mandates and necessitates that this kingdom have an earthly dimension, an earthly element. Let's look at a fourth characteristic. A fourth characteristic of this kingdom is the supremacy of the fifth kingdom. The supremacy of the fifth kingdom kingdom. This passage in verses 44 and 45 describes this fifth kingdom as that which will never be destroyed, unlike the preceding kingdoms before it. Moreover, it is not to be left for another people. In fact, it will crush and put an end to all of these kingdoms, but it itself will stand forever. The Aramaic word in verse 44 that is translated put an end to It means to completely annihilate. In the inspired interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the stone kingdom of the Messiah does not exist side by side or simultaneously with other kingdoms, but it completely and utterly destroys these other kingdoms. Therefore, the establishment of this kingdom must await a future fulfillment the history of the church over the last two millennia has demonstrated the kingdom of men, the kingdoms of this world, rebelling against the sovereign of heaven and persecuting the citizens of heaven, the people of God. The reality that this kingdom that will be established by the God of heaven will put an end to all other kingdoms and will totally obliterate them demands a future fulfillment, completely in harmony with futuristic premillennialism. A fifth characteristic of this kingdom that I want us to look at is the duration, the duration of this fifth kingdom. 
opposed to the temporary and the transitory nature of the preceding kingdoms. This fifth kingdom is described as never being destroyed and standing forever. When this fifth kingdom is established, it will not be replaced by another. There will be no, verse 39, and another kingdom arose after you. It will stand forever. And that brings us to a sixth and a final characteristic that I want you to take note of, and that is the identity of this fifth kingdom, the identity of this fifth kingdom. All of the previous characteristics come together to provide us with the specific identity of this fifth kingdom. Look at verse 45. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will happen in the future. The language of the stone is steeped in messianic undertones, with the Lord Jesus Christ specifically referring to himself as the stone during his incarnational ministry, Matthew chapter 21 and Luke chapter 20. You see this in the apostolic witness in 1 Peter 2 as well, Romans 11. The stone is a reference to the Messiah and to his kingdom. An able commentator, H.C. Leopold, he says this, and, and, and pay attention. He says, the Christian church broke the power of pagan Rome. The Christian church broke the power of pagan Rome. The disintegrating and corrupt empire crumbled through decay from within as well as the impact of the sound morals and the healthy life of Christianity that condemned Rome. It seems as if Leopold, one of the most noteworthy commentators on the book of Daniel, attributes this stone to the Christian church in its progress throughout the empire of Rome. But that doesn't correlate with the depiction of the stone completely smashing all the other kingdoms. A progressive gradual deterioration is not pictured by the complete overhaul of Gentile rule by the destruction and the annihilation wrought by the stone. You see, Jesus in his first coming he came as the one who was mounted on the foal of the donkey. He came as the humble servant to seek and to save the lost. But when he comes again, he's coming for those who eagerly await his appearing. He comes as a conquering warrior. He comes as a smashing stone. It is clear from the characteristics of this fifth kingdom that this establishment awaits a future fulfillment. for those that are still hanging in there with me. It's been the aim and purpose of this study to present to you that just a faithful and consistent walking through an Old Testament passage, Daniel chapter two, mandates and necessitates futuristic premillennialism. You know, again, as I said earlier, you can read systematic theologies, you can read all kinds of books, and if you read anything about eschatology, anything about the millennium, they will cross-reference Daniel chapter two. 
but very little of them give the exegetical treatment that it deserves. Now, prior to concluding this morning, I want to provide you with some important lessons to be learned from this study. Remember, one of the primary eschatological purposes is practical. It's not something to be discussed in online debates, theological articles, or ivory tower theologians, but rather it is immensely practical in the life of the Christian. So therefore, before concluding, I want to provide you with several important lessons that you need to learn from this study. First, you need to prepare yourself for the culmination of redemptive history. You need to prepare yourself. The doctrine of imminency teaches that the unfolding of God's eschatological and redemptive purposes in human history can unfold at any moment. Revelation 1-2, the time is near. James 5, the coming of the Lord is at hand, the judge stands at the door. Prepare yourself. Do not be like the fool in Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 12, storing up for yourself goods for years to come, saying to yourself, eat, drink, and be merry, not concerned with the eternal. Prepare yourself for the culmination of redemptive history. How? How can you prepare yourself for the culmination of redemptive history? Let's look at a second important lesson that you need to learn. You need to ponder the glorious future that awaits the Christian. You need to ponder, you need to meditate upon, you need to dwell upon the glorious future that awaits you, believer. You will be with Christ where he is. Unencumbered by indwelling sin, serving him, worshiping him, adoring him for days without end. You need to ponder that future now. You've probably heard the saying that a Christian can be too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. I would argue that that is not even close to a problem for the Christian. You see, often at times, we're too earthly minded to be of any spiritual good. Colossians 3. If you have been raised with Christ, if you have been raised with Christ, Christian, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are of the earth. Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Shameless plug, the book of the month. God's battle plan for the mind, read it, read it. It is a wonderful work that is chock full of Puritan thoughts concerning the biblical practice of meditation. From that book, here's a quote by the 17th century Puritan, Henry Scougal. He said, we should often meditate upon the joys of heaven. If our heavenly country is often in our thoughts, it will make us, as strangers and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. A third lesson that you need to learn from this passage and this study of God's kingdom 
is you need to proclaim the supremacy of Christ in his kingdom. The reality that Christ will return, that he will abolish all rule and all authority, and he will establish his kingdom should compel us to greater fervency and zeal in our evangelistic witness. We should be heralds and ambassadors boldly proclaiming the supremacy of the Lord Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess. A study of the millennium, a study of this passage should compel us to proclaim the supremacy of Christ in his kingdom. A fourth important lesson that you need to learn is you need to purify your life today in light of the future. We've already mentioned 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. In verse 3, everyone who has this hope fixated upon him, everyone who eagerly awaits his coming purifies himself. Why? Verse 2, because we will be like him. We will be pure just as he is pure. You see, the study of eschatology, the study of the end times should compel us to purify ourselves in our lives now in the present. To pursue greater holiness in our interpersonal relationships, in our individual lives. To put to death the old man with his lust. To put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. To pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. All the while, remembering the truth of Philippians 2, that it is God who is at work within us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Christian, would your prayer be that of Robert Murray McShane? Lord, make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can be made. When your feet hit the floor in the morning, would that be your prayer? Using his means of grace, using his words, using God's people, using his spirit, Lord, make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can be made. In anticipation of that day, when you will be completely rid of the presence of sin. A fifth lesson that you need to learn is you need to pursue a more biblically-based understanding of eschatology. Eschatology is scriptural, it's revelational, and therefore, as a Christian, as one who is called to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to take pains in pursuing a greater familiarity and understanding with the biblical doctrine of eschatology. In contemporary Christendom, people view eschatology as this secondary and tertiary doctrine, which yes, it does not necessarily have the same import as the doctrine of God, the Trinity, soteriology, justification by faith alone, yes, but that does not mean that it is not vitally relevant to your life. That does not mean that you're to abstain from the study just saying that's a tertiary doctrine, should we not break fellowship over it? Yes. But because it is revelational, because God has revealed truths in his inspired and perspicuous word, his clear word, you were to take pains to rightly divide the word of truth and to grow in an understanding of this final of the 10 categories of systematic theology, eschatology. A sixth and a final lesson that you need to learn 
is you need to prostrate yourself before the king. Speaking specifically to any individuals in here this morning, you must prostrate yourself before this king. Psalm chapter two. The judges of the earth, the kings of the earth, they seek to rid themselves of God's cord and his anointed. Here's the call to the kings of the earth. Here's to you who have not bowed the, king, the knee to King Jesus. Show insight. Take warning. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he become angry and you perish in his way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. If you have not bowed the knee to King Jesus, who is described in Daniel chapter two as the stone, who will completely come and cascade into the kingdoms of mankind and utterly destroy them. If Revelation 6 shows that the kings of the earth and every single class of man will call upon the rocks to fall upon us and to hide us from the wrath of the lamb and the one who sits on the throne. Oh man, oh woman, do not be deceived. You are not exempt from that. Kiss the son. Pay humble adoration to the son. Repent and believe in the son. lest his wrath is soon kindled and you perish in the way. You must humbly repent from your rebellion and your sin and you must find the blessing that is bestowed upon all who take their refuge in him, who commit themselves to him in saving faith and trust to the stone, the sun, the risen, ruling, soon returning king. Would that be the work of God in your life today if it has not been done already? Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you this morning and Lord, we acknowledge before you just the sobering reality of the truths that we have studied. That the Lord Jesus Christ came during his first coming and he was cut off according to Daniel chapter nine. And he did away with sin. He atoned for the iniquity of his people. He was raised from the dead on the third day and he ascended to the right hand of the Father on high. And he currently occupies this place in this ministry of present intercession until the time in which he will come back for his own to those who eagerly await him. And he will take them to where he is to be with him forever. Oh God, would you use this study in these various ways? Would we be those that ponder the glorious future that awaits us? Would we be those that proclaim the supremacy of Christ and his kingdom? Would we be those that purify our lives now? Would we be those that pursue a greater familiarity and understanding with the whole counsel of God? And believer and unbeliever alike, today would we realize that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that the stone, that the son of man, that King Jesus is Lord of all to the glory of God the Father. And it's in the triune God's name that we pray, amen.